I performed a funeral yesterday in another town at a funeral home for a man who had grown despairing and had taken his own life. And the funeral home was filled that day by so many loved ones of the family most deeply affected. And you could tell from contact and casual conversation with many of them that going to church services on a regular basis was not their cup of tea. And because it was a particularly vulnerable time, a very significant moment, there was a sense of tension in the room that got worse when I stood up because I was a representative of religion. And it was clear to me that at least for some of the people in the room, encounters with representatives of religion did not always help things in dire and difficult moments. They sometimes made it more tense, less satisfying. And my heart was broken for these people because I thought to myself, how did this happen that, that the religious community, the Christian community, has lost its uh, reputation as the most significant helpers in time of loss and change and trial and transition? How did this happen that we have stopped being uh, agents of a kingdom whose life is so beautiful and winsome that others rejoice when we come into their midst to stand alongside of them in difficult moments? And then I thought how difficult it is sometimes, even for those of us in that community, to appreciate how good God is. (laughs) Amidst all of the the rigmarole and the ritual and the legalism that sometimes afflicts religion, how difficult it is for us to remember how beautiful is the life that God calls us into through his son. To enter into the life of the kingdom of the heavens, said Jesus, or the kingdom of God, as he so often put, the the reign of God's benevolent will, to enter into this requires intentional replacement. Jesus so often taught that to to become fully a child of God means replacing certain dimensions of life that we have, approaches to life that we have developed since our childhood, and, and to be born again into a whole new way. For example, Jesus calls us to replace our program, our agenda, with the greater agenda of the kingdom of God. Uh, to, to more and more have our sense of purpose and direction in life informed by the values of his kingdom and not by all of the clamoring convictions uh, of a dying world. We are also to, to, to have our sense of our possessions replaced by a deeper sense of stewardship, to recognize that what we've been given in this life is, is truly to make a place for our family, to, to meet our own needs, but also to advance God's good and gracious purposes in the lives of people who have so much less, who need a tangible reminder that God loves them and has a good life for them. And alongside the replacement of our uh, program and our sense of possessions, it is essential that to enter the kingdom of heaven and of God's reign, we must also replace some of the principles by which we've been taught to move through the world, and especially in relation to difficult circumstances and difficult people. And to more and more live by a set of kingdom principles in those contexts that transform those circumstances in remarkable ways if we live into them. 
And today, in the time we have remaining, I just want to talk with you about three of those replacements. Three of the particular uh, principles by which the world seems to operate, which God seeks to, uh, to transform through the entrance of a new way of coming at these same uh, circumstances. The first of the uh, worldly principles that Jesus so often speaks against, strikes against, moves against, is what I will simply call the evening principle. As in uh, evening the score. As in getting even. We see this principle operating these days in everything from Uh, the road rage that is common in our uh, culture. I was driving to worship last weekend, and I was pulling up to a stop sign, and I was about to go out into the intersection when, bam, I got hit from behind by somebody. Right on the way to church here, I pulled over, I got out. uh, I could see the look of anguish on the face of the other driver. It was obvious because the roads were a little slippery and slick that he had just braked a little too late, and the car didn't stop, and he'd run into me, and he was expecting my rage. You could see that on his face. He was expecting me to come out and want to get even. And it was such an incredible pleasure to be able to go back to him and say, you know, it just doesn't look like that much. Merry Christmas. You know, Merry Christmas. But so much of the time, it's not like this for us. So much of the time, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a fight in this world. Uh, people are always trying to get even from the the, the violence that is done in our schools by people who have been uh, bullied or left out, to the vitriolic diatribes that are so commonplace in our political culture or our workplace and sometimes even in our homes today. We're trying to even the score. The wisdom we absorb as we grow up in this uh, combative world of ours is if people let us down, rough them up. If they let you down, rough them up in some way. Let them know. That they can't get away with this. Get even. Hurt the person who's hurt you. To do less is to make yourself a doormat. To do less is to deny the justice you deserve. Evening the score becomes a way of life. Alongside of this principle, there is, in the world today, operative what I would call the escape principle. The world is defined in many places by this escape principle. And the mindset there simply is, if it isn't working out, get out. If it isn't working out, get out. Only idiots keep investing in a losing proposition is the common wisdom. If this marriage is not what I had in mind, then I'm out of here. If this employee is not what I had Imagine, don't waste more time and energy, they're out of here. If this church is not what I'd hoped for, then I'm down the road to the next church. If this relationship is not what I have expected, I hit the escape key. The escape principle, prevalent in many places, and underlying the escape principle and the evening principle is one last orientation I want to touch on this morning. I'll simply call this the expedience principle. The expedience principle. And the core idea there is if the path that you're on requires sacrifice, sacrifice the path. Sacrifice the path. 
Because the underlying assumption constantly being peddled to us in so many uh, avenues of communication in our world is that life is supposed to be easy. It is supposed to be comfortable. It is supposed to be convenient. It is to be about our pleasure and our advancement. So if it gets difficult, then maybe you're on the wrong path. Maybe you should get yourself a different path, a different car, a different mate, a different something else. Life should be expedient, as in easy and convenient for me. Now, I know it's not like this everywhere and at all times. I know there actually is some value in in setting some limits, in holding people accountable, right? It's important every now and then to walk away, to shake the dust from our feet. Jesus even said that in certain situations, Uh, It is important that we um, act wisely and with some sense of stewardship and utility and not just keep investing always in things that are going downhill. But, But do any of you see any evidence in our culture's life or in your life that these principles that have become so commonplace are actually injuring us, actually degrading the quality of life and character and community in ways that concern you? Can you find any of these principles in your own life, for example? Can you see them in your own practices? I think it's because I I do see some of these principles operative in me and in many of the people with whom I am in relationship. It's because of that that I I find this story we read in Matthew chapter 1 so particularly provocative. Um, I think it is so relevant to our time simply because it portrays for us somebody who is in a life situation that could easily bring forth the practice of those very same principles we've just described. For example, if there is anyone who might have wanted to even the score in the face of being hurt, surely it would have been this man, Joseph. Really think about this. Think about Joseph's situation, if you would, with me. Joseph has been betrothed to a lovely maiden named Mary. Uh, He is going to uh, be married shortly to her. It is one of the great uh, milestones in the life of any human being, and especially in those days where you relied so much on your family to sustain you over the years. His fiancée has pledged her love and her loyalty to him and he to her. And you can just see Joseph going out and telling people the great news, he's going to be married. There's a lot of excitement and joy and anticipation behind all of that. You can see Joseph brimming with pride and excitement in the same way that anybody does, anticipating their wedding day. But Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 tells us, but before they came together, before they had a conjugal relationship, Mary was found to be with child. Preggers, as they said in England when I lived in that part of the world. She was found to be pregnant. Now, we can put a Christmas card frame around this part of the story, if we like, as sometimes people do. But it cannot change the reality that hearing this news had to have been Devastating for Joseph. 
Uh, it had to have been one of the most cataclysmic, devastating, staggering pieces of information that had ever come into his life. You just put yourself inside of that scenario. What are you feeling like when you hear this news? What do you want to do? You want to shred the person that's doing this to you. You're in a small town. Everybody is going to know about this. Everybody you've ever met, all the people you're going to spend the rest of your life around is going to know now that you have been jilted in this very agonizing way. You want to hurt and humiliate the person that has done this to you. Everything in human nature and probably especially everything in male nature, in in particularly that time in history, is going to say, make this girl pay for what she's done to me. Make her pay. And here's the rub. Here's the rub. As natural as it is for the flesh to say, in certain circumstances, even the score, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that defines the nature of the kingdom of the heavens, often says... Show mercy. Show mercy there. God has shown you, O man, what is good, said the prophet Micah. He has shown you what is good. He has shown you not what is human. He has shown you not what is natural and understandable. He has shown you not what lots of other people do. God has shown you what is good. What aligns with his nature, he's shown you this. He's shown you the way of his kingdom. And what is that? What does the Lord require of you? Micah goes on to ask, and then he answers the question, to act justly, which means to justify, to right to, um, right justify, to align yourself with God's character. To act, that's what acting justly means. It's to align yourself with the character of God. And therefore, to love mercy, as God does. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. To to, to stay open to that God's leading on the path of life. Joseph must have been very steeped in God's word. I just have to figure, it's got to be what explains his actions in these circumstances. Matthew actually says, Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, which means he was justified. He was right up. He was aligned very much with the character of God. He was literally a just man, a man faithful to the laws of God's kingdom. He did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, the text says, verse 19. He didn't want to. Now, Hebrew law, as many of you know, would have allowed him to. In fact, Hebrew law, to preserve the standards of the society, would have encouraged him to. Joseph would have been well within his rights, in fact, maybe even celebrated, if he'd gone and posted Mary's picture on Facebook. And and if he'd used that network and any other communications channels he had to invite everybody, all of his friends, to the public stoning of this adulterous woman. And that public stoning would have been carried on YouTube everywhere and have been very popular 
because it would have been regarded as a just action against somebody who had done such wrong. But somehow the worldly principle of evening, of evening the score, had been replaced in the heart of Joseph by the kingdom principle of mercy. Joseph acted like God in these circumstances. He did not want Mary to receive the judgment she apparently deserved. And that's what mercy is, by the way. Most of us are familiar with the word grace. Grace is giving somebody a good they do not deserve. Mercy is not giving somebody the bad they do deserve, as she apparently did. And so we're told, even before he got a further word from God on the subject to clarify the circumstances, even before he had any kind of evidence that there was anything else going on than the apparent reality of her total betrayal of him, even before that happens, Joseph, we're told, had in mind to just divorce Mary quietly, mercifully. Now, as you know, before Joseph got around to implementing that plan, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, we're told. And the angel told him that the child in Mary was, in fact, the seed of the Holy Spirit. It was a spontaneous conception initiated by God himself and not by human flesh. And this seed, this child to be born in her, would be the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. Sometimes I I read this account and I think to myself, right, so that just settled it. Joseph just had this dream, woke up in the morning, ah, everything was chill, no problem. All his anxiety gone. He'd heard a message from God. That that pregnancy was just simply a a divine pregnancy, of course. That explains it. I'm completely fine now. I'm so glad I got that confusion straightened out. I know it couldn't have been that easy. There's no way, given human nature, it could have ever been that simple. You've got dreams You know, do they always put you at peace? Do they give you complete clarity? Do you have total confidence it wasn't the spaghetti dinner that that gave you this hallucination in the night? A part of Joseph had to have been yelling, I don't care what I dreamed last night. This situation is awful. I've got to get out of this. I've got to get out of here. And yet what we see in Joseph that is so striking is how the worldly principles are replaced in his heart by a kingdom principle. In this case, the human principle of escape, of pushing her away, of backing away from Mary is replaced by the kingdom principle of faithfulness. Of faithfulness. When his flesh was screaming, get out before it gets worse. Get out before it gets worse. The voice of the Holy Spirit said, Joseph, stay faithful until it gets better. Hang in there until you see what God does through your faithfulness. And so Matthew tells us Joseph did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. 
Wow. Wow. It strikes me that there is also a third virtue at work in the life of Joseph here that's worth observing. It is the one that I have found almost always underlies the behavior of any believer who lives by mercy and faithfulness in an even Stephen escape-oriented world. I almost always find this particular principle operative beneath the surface of someone who is unusually merciful and faithful uh, by today's standards. The only way somebody responds to life's very tough problems, the way Joseph does here, is if the human principle of expedience, of, of, of seeking the way that is easier and more convenient, if that way is progressively replaced by the kingdom principle of obedience, then the person's behavior becomes different. The great British evangelical John Stott once observed that greatness in the kingdom of God is always measured in terms of obedience. That, it, that the defining character of greatness is, is obedience to the call of God even when it's very difficult. An English visitor to a U.S. church uh, once commented, you Americans are so concerned about being happy. We've noticed that. If you've lived outside the States at all, you begin to notice that about our own homeland. Uh, that there's a great concern about our happiness here in these United States. It's, it's like you think, says this visitor, that your kingdom is the focal point of God's design. It's like you believe that the way you have arranged things is the focal point of God's purposes rather than God's kingdom being the focal point of yours. It's like you have it backwards, is what this person was saying. I had a, we had a visitor from China uh, here at the church some years ago, and, uh, and this person observed. You know, it's fascinating. I listen to Americans pray, pray, and the consistent prayer of Americans is, Lord, bless us. God, bless us. It's not the prayer of Christians around the world, he said. The prayer so often in China amongst the believers is, God, help us to be a blessing. Help us to bless others. Move in us so that we can be a blessing to others, even if it's not expedient. Is this true about us? Um, Do we have it backwards in the American church today? Do we think God's job is to meet our objectives, or are we very clear, as clear as maybe we need to be, that our job is to meet his objectives? When was the last time? Here's a great test question. When was the last time you or I were obedient to the call of God, even though it took us down a path that was very hard and rugged and difficult and where we couldn't see the end very clearly? When was the last time we lived by this kingdom principle of obedience? Sometimes we can't see clearly the outcome We can't see the end of the trail God is leading us on when he calls us to go with him. Eric Weyenmeyer could not see that either. Weyenmeyer was blind from age 13 years on, but it didn't stop him from longing 
to do great things, to climb mountains, in fact. And on one particular uh, climb, he, he simply learned to listen to the bell that was tied to the back of the climber in front of him so he would know in which direction he should be traveling. And on another journey, he learned to listen to the voice of the teammates who would go with him and who would shout out instructions to him, death fall, two feet to your right. And he attended closely to that kind of message. And and in that way, avoided catastrophe. He would learn to listen to the sound of the ice pick jabbing into the ice in front of him as he moved So he would know where the ice was safe to cross and and where it wasn't. And so as he learned to listen in all of these ways, he became better and better at the climbing process until on May the 25th, 2001, on a mountain where 90% of all climbers never make it to the top and 165 people have died Trying to get to the top, Eric Weyenmeyer crested the peak of Mount Everest. The blind man did. What could you do? Who've got all your senses? Where could God take you? Obedience comes from the Latin word obedire, which comes from the root word audiere, which means to listen. It just means to listen. To obey means to listen to God's commandments, not just intellectually, but with that deep heart hearing that moves our will to keep moving one foot in front of the other foot in the direction of the instruction. Step after step after step, even when we cannot see the summit toward which we are being led. It's hard to do this. This is really hard to do. That is why the word disciple comes from the same root word for discipline. Right? It's it's a discipline. The way of the kingdom is an athletic venture. (laughs) Right? It's something that requires a strenuous engagement. It's like running a race or, or climbing a mountain. And we tend to forget this. We, we, we tend to be a little like the characters in the fourth grade Sunday school pageant where one of the characters is playing the, the role of the innkeeper and he says to Joseph and Mary, uh, can't you see the no vacancy sign? And Joseph, the fourth grader, says, yes, but can't you see that my wife is expecting a baby at any time? And the innkeeper replies, well, that's not my fault. And Joseph says, well, it's not mine either. <laughs> it had to have been unbelievably hard for Joseph to keep climbing the, the trail of mercy and faithfulness so obediently when his circumstances were so obviously not his fault. Right? He didn't bring this on himself. So so I want to know how he made it to the summit. Because I want to know how I can. And how you can. Where does a person get the motivation and the strength 
to keep on living obediently when it's hard? How does our faltering willpower get replaced by God's powerful will? Well, let me leave you today with just two suggestions about that. First, fix your mind more on God's greatness. Fix your mind more, not on what you can do, but what God can do, on his greatness. The famed missionary, Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was martyred in the mission cause, writes, do you remember what Moses said when he had that stunning encounter with God in the desert? God told him that he was going to send Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses said, who's going to do that? Who? Me? <laughs> Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God reminded Moses that it really didn't make any difference who he was. What mattered was who God was. And then Moses said, well, how shall I speak to them? What will I even say? And God said, I'll tell them what to say. I'll tell you what to say. And then Moses had another objection. But what if they don't listen to me? And God said, then I will arise and I will bear my holy arm. The point is, never who you and I are. That's never the point or what our gifts and our limitations might be. The point is what God in all of his grace and his greatness can do through an obedient life. I have a little sign. I have it in my office. It sits on my desk. It's right there where I can see it all the time. And I look at it a lot. I need to look at it a lot. It says, Dan, relax. I have it under control. Jesus. I love the words of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, who said, what God can do through one life fully surrendered to him, this world has yet to see. Of course, it has seen what God can do through one life fully surrendered to him. We see this in the life of Jesus himself. But the world is waiting to see what God can do through more lives, more fully surrendered to this way of mercy, faithfulness, and obedience than they already are. So if you want to live the way of the kingdom, fix your mind on his greatness. Then secondly, if you want to develop even greater obedience to his way, fasten your thoughts upon God's goodness. Let your heart become enraptured with the way that God lives. It's why coming to church and connecting in these ways as we do, looking into the face of God through the scriptures is so critical. We must become more and more enraptured with the goodness of God. Notice how he shows mercy even when he could so easily and rightfully get even. Notice how he keeps his promises when he could opt out and escape completely justifiably. Notice how Jesus puts obedience to the Father's will above the expedience of his own comfort and for the joy set before him endures even the cross. Notice this. When I look at the magnificence of the life of Christ, I think to myself, I want to live that way. I do. 
I care about this more than I care about anything else in life. I want to become more like Jesus. So I pray, Lord, help me with this. Fill me with your spirit. Let me take this next step of obedience in this relationship, in this challenge toward that goal. And what I want to let you know and remind you of is that you, just like me, were made for this. We were made for the summit. We were made made to run the good race. During the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, something remarkable and memorable happened with which I want to close our time together. Some of you may have been in front of the television screen or actually in Barcelona to see the events unfold. But there was a moment in the Olympics when British sprinter Derek Anthony Redmond tore a hamstring on the backstretch of the 400-meter race and to the gasp of the crowd fell face down on the track. He had already been plagued with injuries and misfortunes and so much hope had been put into him finishing this race well and then suddenly the injury strikes again and he's face down on the track and the crowd is just groaning. In the midst of this painful moment, somewhere down near the edge of the track, a man gets up out of his seat and he, with some effort, puts his leg up and over the railing and he runs out onto the track. It's an older man, and he runs right up to the fallen figure of Derek Anthony Redmond, and he helps him to his feet, and he embraces him. And Derek Anthony Redmond's father says to him, come on, son, let's go. We'll finish this race together which they then went on to do, painful step by painful step around the entire track to the standing ovation of the world. The world is still waiting to see the beauty and goodness of a life lived in courageous dependence and surrender to the purposes of God. I do not know where you are on the journey today. I do not know the details of the challenges that you may be personally facing. I don't know what kind of specific help you particularly need, but what I do know is that this help is there for you as it was for Joseph, as it was for Derek, because into this world there has been born Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. He is still with us. He didn't arrive, walk around for a few years, and check out. He occupied the planet, again, through the power of his Holy Spirit. He is there with us. Christ has come from the mountaintop of a kingdom that operates by these infinitely better principles than we have been taught to live by today. He knows what it is to be fully surrendered to the power and the glory and the goodness of this great God. He knows what it means to really run the best possible race and to cross the finish line in victory and with your heavenly Father. He comes alongside of you today. And he says, listen to me. Listen to me. Live by the principles of my kingdom, not this world's. 
and lean on me and let's finish this race together. Please pray with me. Lord, some of us have been badly hurt by somebody else, and there is a part of us that does want to get even. Maybe there's more to the story of the other person's actions than we know. Maybe not. But in either case, if it is your will, help us to show mercy. Some of us are in relationships where we think very seriously of escaping before it gets even worse. And we're really tempted to do that, to just get out. Help us, Lord, to keep our promises, to remain faithful until it gets better. Some of us, Lord, are living expedient lives. We've shunned sacrifice and discipline, failing to see that it it was us, it was we who were losing out when we did these things. So help us to set forth today on a new journey, one of discipline and obedience. For in the power of your Spirit, we believe that all things are still possible. And in the name of the Savior, we pray, have your way in us. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.